Move Forward Radio is brought to you by ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. While a physical therapist isn't the first healthcare provider who comes to mind for treating people with eating disorders, building strength and emphasizing healthy movement through physical therapy is increasingly recognized as a valuable tool in treating such disorders. It also is a means of improving long-term recovery. As physical therapist Nicole Sabatka explains in this episode, physical therapy helps patients with severe eating disorders address life-limiting strength and mobility issues resulting from their illness. Its benefits include restoring physical function, ensuring that people can participate more fully in their treatment and in activities of daily life, and improving their psychological well-being. And while most patients with eating disorders won't develop severe forms of the illness, physical therapy can help a broad spectrum of people better address the challenges they face. Nicole is part of a multidisciplinary treatment team that provides an ICU level of care to severely malnourished patients. She describes the workings of that team, highlights patient success stories, and talks about the tools patients receive to lessen the chances of destructive behaviors recurring. Nicole further explains why anyone with an eating disorder, whatever its severity, can benefit from seeing a physical therapist. She also shares resources for getting help. Here's our conversation with Nicole. Nicole, thanks for joining us on Move Forward Radio. Uh, You're a physical therapist at the Acute Center for Eating Disorders, which is an arm of uh, Denver Health in Colorado which, as its name suggests, treats people with the most severe eating disorders. Um, I want to talk to you in a bit about what ACUTE does and your role there. But first, can you discuss eating disorders in general? What are the main types and and what tends to cause them? Of course, there are a number of types, and the DSM-5 has actually expanded this recently. Um, But I think the most common ones, the ones that people are probably most familiar with, are anorexia nervosa, and there's actually two subtypes of this. So there is going to be anorexia restricting and then anorexia binge purge. And then we have bulimia nervosa. So beyond those two, there are binge eating disorder, atypical anorexia, where people lose a significant amount of weight in a short period of time, but may still present in a normal weighted body. Um, And then there's also this thing called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is not really associated with a body dysmorphia or fear of fat or obsession with kind of counting calories or exercise that the other ones can be. It's usually related more to some kind of trauma with food, perhaps like a choking incident that happened as a child, some kind of sensory issue. So people who may have aversions to wearing certain textures or certain scents that they can't have on their bodies can sometimes also have aversion to foods in that way. And then they can also have some kind of medical issue that has caused this uh, restrictive food intake disorder. So those are kind of the highlights of the main types across the board. But then there's also things called pica, which is when you start eating non-food substances, um, and then rumination disorder as well, which is more so when you are kind of regurgitating your food almost. These are uh, psychological factors, but there, there can be physical factors as well. There are so many physical factors, and I know that we'll get more into acute later, but I just do want to say that I primarily treat mostly 
underweight patients. So I thought I just want to put that out there for anyone who's listening. But we see significant impacts on things like bone mineral density. Many of our patients have osteopenia or osteoporosis. So that's when the bone is a little bit weaker. So about 90% of anyone who has anorexia nervosa, either subtype or anyone who's underweight from an eating disorder will have an effect on their bone density. So they will have that bony loss, which puts them at higher risk for fractures down the road and things like that. But there is generalized muscle weakness, and this can affect everything from lifting your head off of a pillow to being able to go up and down the stairs to be able to participate in your activities of daily living. And so those are two of the most common ones, but there's a whole slew of medical complications as well. So I mean, people are going to have slower heart rates, heart damage, kidney damage, electrolyte imbalances. So it, it really affects every single system in the body. Right. So, so tell me, how, how big a problem are eating disorders in this country? And, and, and sort of what's the trend line there? So they are now the second deadliest um, psychiatric illness. We, we used to say or be able to say that they were the deadliest, but that they've recently been overtaken by the opioid epidemic. So only about a third of patients who have an eating disorder seek care. So uh, there's a large percentage of people out in the country who are just untreated. And anecdotally, I would say since COVID has started, our unit specifically and a lot of residential um, centers who treat eating disorders have been very full. So I think that life stresses are definitely impacting people. But overall, I think that the, the average is like 9% of the population struggle with eating disorders in some form or function. Wow. So, so as, as you've touched on, uh, the, these are mental illnesses with, with physical manifestations. And uh, you, you've talked a little bit about some of the uh, physical manifestations of eating disorders, but can you talk a little bit more about the implications there for overall health and quality of life of individuals who have these disorders? There are, again, I want to just reiterate that the malnutrition or the eating disorder is going to affect every system of the body. So in terms of quality of life, Patients are usually pretty consumed by their eating disorder, and that is if whether they're underweight or normal weighted. So it's almost like an obsessive compulsive thing where they're constantly thinking about meals or exercise or what they're not eating or how can they be more active in their day to burn more calories. Or if there's people who binge, maybe they are planning the meals they're going to binge or the food they're going to binge. So just the cognitive aspect that goes into it is that the eating disorder really takes over and influences everything. A lot of our patients will come in and say that they spend less time with their families or that they are unable to work. And that could be because of just the, the growing time that this disorder is taking from their life, but it could also be from the weakness. So some patients are so weak that they can no longer get in and out of bed. They can't care for their children, lift their, their child up. Maybe they're having frequent falls, which of course could lead to injury. But we also see patients who come in and they say, you know, I've been in and out of the, the emergency department the last couple of weeks. So in terms of quality of life, I would say it's very, very poor in general. Usually they're, they're surviving, not thriving, quote unquote. But again, we just see kind of generalized weakness. And so this is going to affect, of course, all of those physical tasks that I mentioned. But a lot of uh, something that people don't realize is that it's also going to affect their GI tract. A lot of these people have delayed stomach emptying. And so they're going to have constipation as well, causing abdominal distension and bloating. Some people 
lose the fat behind their eyelids so they can no longer close their eyes so they're having eye irritation some of our patients present with this kind of starved brain phenomena where they've actually lost some of the fatty tissue in their brain and so their cognition their thinking is a little bit slower their responses is a little bit slower many of these things are fixable through refeeding. But as you can imagine, I mean, if you're thinking slower, if you are constipated, if you're obsessed with your next meal, I mean, it's really hard for you to just be a regular person. I'm struck by the, the similarities, you know, as you're talking about all these, these different factors and the fact that it is so all-consuming. All it, it, it strikes me as being, you know, like you hear about opioid addiction, where the person is just focused on getting their, their next fix and nothing else seems to matter. It, it seems to be that kind of an all-encompassing kind of thing. It really is all-encompassing. And many of our patients, or I think 97% or some, some extremely high number like that, of people with eating disorders have some kind of other mental health disorder or mood disorder. So whether that's depression or anxiety or PTSD, trauma history, addiction, um, there's a super, super high correlation there. So these people have a lot going on and it is kind of an an all-encompassing urge at times. Well, in, in, in terms of uh, what we've been saying about there being such a, such a mental illness factor to it, what are the treatment implications of that, Nicole? It doesn't mean that anyone with an obvious or suspected eating disorder should first be assessed by a mental health professional. Sort of what's the, what's the entry into the healthcare arena, if you will? That's a great question. It's, it's hard to say. I think it depends on the seriousness of the disorder personally. So, I mean, if someone is stable enough to still be living at home and they're not experiencing fainting episodes from electrolyte disturbances, if, so if they're safe enough, I think they could start with a, a therapist or a psychologist often what we kind of see is that many patients become medically unstable first before they, they seek treatment. So in, in that scenario, going to a primary care physician or a, a medical doctor that specializes in eating disorder is probably the front line. But I would say the registered dietitian is also going to play an extremely important role in stabilization as well. So I think that any of those three practitioners could be the first point of contact. It really just depends on the health, the current health in that moment of that individual. Right. So you're a physical therapist. Yes. Physical therapy is not typically a part of the multidisciplinary treatment approach. For, for eating disorders, but, uh, but you believe, and, and I imagine you've likely experienced in your role at, at the acute center, that there are great benefits to having a physical therapist on the treatment team. But before we discuss those benefits, which healthcare disciplines, just so people will know, typically are represented on a treatment team? In the outpatient world, you will have a medical doctor, a some kind of therapist, whether that's a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor, and then you'll have your registered dietitian for sure. So those are the three main professionals that kind of span the continuum of care. Physical therapy is branching out a little bit more into the outpatient world as well. I have a couple of contacts here in Denver who it may be because of the proximity to acute that we have more here, but they're, they are kind of a growing field. But other than that, I mean, you, you could have a psychiatrist as well to add on to your psychologist, but those are kind of the main people. And then here we have all of those people along with physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, chaplain services. So we have, we have a, quite a robust interdisciplinary team. 
From what you're saying, it, it sounds like physical therapists are, are fairly new new to these teams. What, why is that? Sort of what's the history there and what's changed such that physical therapists now are, are being increasingly included? Physical therapy is extremely new to eating disorders. And I think that's because the, the old school of thought was just that these people needed to be on bed rest. Because if, if you're speaking about someone who was at 60% of their quote unquote ideal body weight, you're doing everything you can to help them conserve the, the calories and the energy that they have and then trying to limit them from using up any more. So I think that in the past, PT and OT were kind of seen as no-nos. I mean, it was seen like a more of a dangerous thing. Like, why would we bring in this, this other profession that's actually going to make this problem, quote unquote, worse? But obviously, there has been tons of research on bed rest and all of the, the negative effects of that. So we, we are lucky enough to just have started in a hospital like specific to my unit that had PT that was willing to be included. But there's been a lot of studies done, a lot out of, out of Europe and some, some in the U.S. that really speak to how physical therapists can actually help with weight gain in the setting of eating disorders as long as the patient is still under the care of their medical doctor, their dietitian, and some kind of therapy to also deal with any triggers. But physical therapy can really help regain embodiment and help patients feel kind of strong and empowered in their body, which for many of them is a really new feeling because their body, their body is often their enemy. You know, it's not, it's not skinny enough. It's not strong enough. Right. It's hungry. All of these things are negatives to them. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what sorts of things, uh, Nicole, can uh, physical therapists specifically bring to the puzzle of treating people with eating disorders and, and promoting their long-term health and, and doing so safely? So I would say across the continuum of care from inpatient to outpatient, physical therapy can really, really help patients be safe within their bodies and do a lot of education. So 90% of people, as I mentioned earlier, who are malnourished from an eating disorder will have some impact on their bone density. So we do a significant amount of education on what this means, what it means to have osteopenia and osteoporosis, and what this would look like, what this will look like going forward. The, I think the average fracture risk is still significantly higher up to 27, 30 years after resolution of the eating disorder itself. So we want to start talking to people about their body mechanics and their ergonomics. And if they do yoga, you know, what are some, what are more dangerous poses or what to avoid? So we really want to give them information that they can carry forward and be safe for their whole life. So that is one really, really big area that we can impact. And often people with eating disorders have some kind of impact to their, as I mentioned, GI system, but a lot of women that we see suffer from urinary incontinence. So we end up doing a lot of core stabilization and pelvic floor strengthening and work just so that patients can be more empowered and more in control of that system. We can speak about exercise, especially with those patients who are 
over exercisers. So we start to talk about movement and what is appropriate movement and how much movement is appropriate. I mean, what's the why behind movement? You know, is it is it really because you find joy in moving your body? Um, or is it because you feel like you need to control the weight or shape or size of your body or because you feel like you absolutely have to burn these calories? Um, so we have some formalized assessments that we use for that, like the compulsive exercise test and the exercise dependency scale are kind of things that we use frequently here. But a lot of our patients are also just generally weak. So just regular bread and butter PT, working on posture, working on core strength, working on diaphragmatic breathing and activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, which helps relax people and helps support digestion. So we really can do a lot in terms of eating disorders. What, what's the parasympathetic nerve system? Thank you for asking. Um, so we have kind of two subsets of the nervous system. So many people have heard of maybe the flight or fight or freeze response. That is the sympathetic nervous system. So a lot of our patients are kind of living in this sympathetic nervous system state. So what that means is they're kind of living in this like amped up state where blood is actually being kind of moved away from their brain and their digestive tract and towards their big skeletal muscles in case they would need to run, fight, hide, whatever. Um, so we want to engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the counterpart to the sympathetic nervous system. And that is either called the rest and digest nervous system or the tend and befriend nervous system. So what that does is restores normal blood flow to the brain bringing kind of higher levels of thinking back on so we're not reacting from this like fear response and then normal blood flow to the digestive tract which is going to support normal digestion and also activates the vagus nerve and so all of this can lead to really more of a calm relaxed um, sense of of living and operating a quick break to encourage you to move physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of chronic disease not to mention improved bone health, cognitive function, weight control, and overall quality of life. Simply put, more movement is the gateway to better health. Need some help to get going? Physical therapists are movement experts who use exercise, hands-on care, and patient education to help you meet your goals. You can contact a PT directly for an evaluation. Learn more and find a physical therapist near you at choosept.com. So, so let's back up here a little bit. Let, let me ask you uh, about uh, your work at the Acute Center. Uh, and mm -hmm. a, a good place to start might be to ask, uh, what led you to the facility? Did you have a, a personal connection with this patient population? Was it simply a compelling professional opportunity to you? It was a compelling professional opportunity. And honestly, I don't know if I can see myself doing anything else. It's so interesting. I love it so much. Uh, what, 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 what about it do you find so, so compelling and making it something that you, you could see yourself in for a long period of time? It's, it's just such a unique blend as a physical therapist of this inpatient level of care and outpatient. Um, so we, we have patients who come in who are so debilitated that they literally cannot lift their head off of the pillow. One specific patient comes to mind who came to us in May. Um, we had her for about nine weeks and she was running and working out and working up until a week before admission. She went into the emergency department and didn't walk for about a week before she came in. She was um, hospitalized at that time. And so we were really starting from the ground up with her. We had to work on bed mobility. We had to wait for her, for her cardiac response to normalize because she would 
increase your heart rate to 160 beats per minute, which is extremely high and can be very dangerous in this population with just moving her legs in bed. So she wasn't walking. So we had to do sitting edge of bed and work on her core strength. We got her in a wheelchair and she eventually left walking progressing from a walker to walking without any device. So that was, it's so rewarding to be part of someone's journey like that. So she is one very extreme case, but then we also have athletes who come in or people who are still functioning at a pretty high level despite being so malnourished. And so we get to do really kind of fun, crunchy, hippy dippy things like let's talk about your body mechanics. Let's talk about your relationship to exercise. Let's talk about how hard this journey is and how uncomfortable you feel in your body. And let's, let's kind of combat that and let me be part of your journey. It's just, it's so rewarding. It just, I don't know if there's another PT setting like this. I have not seen it, certainly. I'm curious, like that, that first patient that you, you had talked about, um, over what period of time is this, uh, is this sort of uh, transformation happening? She was with us for about two months, and we were just the first step of care for her. Mm-hmm. So af- after she was with us, she went to a residential level of care, um, and she may, I'm not sure where she is in the levels right now, but she still had quite a ways to go by the time she left us, but she was independent with her movement. So that means she was getting in and out of bed on her own, in and out of chairs on her own, doing flights of stairs, walking around the unit, getting up and down off the floor. And this is again, a woman who came in unable to lift her head. Right, right. So had the center included PT and and OT in its care approach before you came on board or or were you sort of a a trailblazer of sorts? No, the the unit, you know, Dr. Mueller, the the founder of the unit started this way, way back, but ACUTE became an official unit in 2008 and we had physical therapy on board at that time. So I I cannot take credit for it. I'm lucky I get to stand on the, the shoulders of giants. There was a couple PTs before me who did so much work and kind of setting up our program. You, you've you've described the center as being a, a a quote unquote ICU level of care, which which obviously is for people with with pretty extreme eating disorders. But but they also, as you say, can have the physical manifestations can be uh, uh, fairly mild but dangerous. So um, treating on multiple levels of care. And you've described that you play a triage role, quote unquote, on, on both the inpatient and outpatient tracks. What, what, is, what does that mean? Can you sort of describe your triage role? Yeah, and I do just want to clarify as well that all of our patients are actually inpatients when they're at acute, but because they're here for that nutritional stabilization, we have to be really mindful about the amount of mobility that we're giving those patients. So the way that we have figured out how to do this to support them, but also support them gaining weight is this triage into quote-unquote inpatient and outpatient. So our inpatients are going to be seen four to six days a week for 30 to 60 minutes a day. And that is going to be like that patient who I mentioned earlier who was here in May who wasn't able to lift her head. So she was definitely a classic inpatient patient of ours. And then I can think of a sweet young girl from the Midwest we had who was a high school student. She came in playing sports, was still very strong. She had only had her her eating disorder for a brief period of time. So that may be why she was still so strong. But I was only seeing her twice a week, more like a classic outpatient PT model. So we were doing things more like exercise compulsion, body mechanics, and return to sports. 
so we we work really closely with our dietitians and we can flex up and down as we need to but keep in mind that most of our patients here are presenting at you know 50 to 70 percent of their ideal body weight so some of these patients are extremely extremely ill right so i'm curious because this is such a uh, problem that, that do- can dog people over a long period of their life. So what tools do you and, and others uh, provide during the time that they're there at Acute to, to try to strengthen their sense of mental, emotional, physical well-being, uh, given the fact that, again, these, these are mental illnesses with recurrence of destructive behavior being an ever-present danger? I think that each each discipline definitely has its own approach into how they support patients, but we have a really robust mental health team. So we have our our therapists, our social workers, and our occupational therapists who all do some kind of coping and therapy and support and mindfulness. Um, so that is super important. I think often PTs, we get to be kind of the, the fun ones, quote unquote, for some of these patients. So we get to really know our patients and it's so, it's so great to be part of their lives and kind of just step in with them and help them through this journey, you know, asking about kids' birthdays and holidays and things because we get to know them really well. Most of them stay at least three weeks, but we have um, a really large CNA staff. So it's very common that our patients have a one-on-one CNA with them the entire time. So that person is super huge and offering just hour-to-hour support um, and kind of supervision. We do a lot of team meetings, so often the entire treatment team will gather with a patient on a weekly basis to just kind of touch base, and this is in addition to any individual sessions, but just make sure that we're on the same page with care or behavior plan or that we are on the same, um, aligned on the same goals. We have some groups. We have an occupational therapy group and a psychology group to try to prepare people for the next level of care. We used to have a therapy dog, which was the highlight of our Tuesdays and Saturdays, but COVID has really, really affected the hospital in that way. We really just try to be as supportive as we can, but it's, of course, all very individualized. Um, But they are meeting with their mental health or behavioral health team, you know, three to five days a week. Well, that, that brings up another point. Uh, during this during this COVID period, how how much more difficult does it does it make your your job? Oh, I think it's really affected the patients. Uh, we used to do a lot more sessions out in the hallway or in kind of our common areas or in the PT and OT offices and gym. But we have been pretty limited to room-based treatment right now in an effort to prevent the spread of COVID. So I think that our patients just get so sick of staring at the same four walls. Mm -hmm. So that has added certainly another layer. And our groups were not allowed for a period of time, but we have kind of brought those back online with distancing and masks and a, a small cap on group sizes. But I think personally being forced to socially distance and quarantine earlier in the spring as part of a stay-at-home order, I have never felt more empathy for patients in the hospital, just speaking mm-hmm. generally, because I think it is so hard, especially when visitors are limited as well. Well, and I would imagine for, for people who have eating disorders, uh, being, um, being so- somewhat isolated is, is not necessarily a friend to somebody with an eating disorder. It's not necessarily a friend, um, and I think that it 
it really has kind of increased a lot of people's behaviors. And I think things I've heard from people who have come in during COVID is that the stress of COVID and everything else that's going on in the world has definitely impacted and increased people's eating disorders, thoughts and behaviors, but other things have kind of popped up that I hadn't really thought about. So a concern about germs or food preparation was a big thing earlier in COVID where a lot of patients had limited their food even more or could only eat warm food or couldn't eat at work or in public even more so than before just because of a fear of contamination. So I mean, there's so many different ways that COVID has affected anyone with an eating disorder that I think we don't even have a full concept of this yet. Um, you've established that the uh, the acute center was uh, was 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 pretty innovative in including PT and, and OT and some of these other services years ago already. Uh, what do you see as being the um, the trend or the possibility that uh, more eating disorder centers or people who treat this population will will um, incorporate your approach and and start including PT and OT in the services that they provide to this population? I think that they will just continue to increase movement at the residential and other levels of of eating disorder care. So I don't know if it will necessarily be physical and occupational therapists, but I know that many, so when people step down from the hospital setting, they typically go to what's called a residential level of care. So they're still living there, um, but it's less medical oversight, more um, psychiatric, psychological, and, and meal or nutrition focus. So they're still overseen by therapists and dietitians and a nursing staff usually. A lot of those centers have some kind of walking program or yoga program that they offer a couple times a week. I've heard of some of these places now having like a strength and conditioning coach or athletic trainer or some kind of kinesiotherapist. So I think that the trend is definitely moving towards movement, which I think is great because I mean, people need to move and people need to feel good in their bodies, even if they have an eating disorder. And I also think that we can't ignore the elephant in the room. I think if someone loves to exercise, they're probably going to exercise regardless. So hopefully we can come in and teach them how to do it in a more safe, appropriate, and like supportive to their overall life kind of way and not let it just be a problem. Right. You know, it, it occurs to me what you were talking about earlier about you, you having kind of the fun role in a sense that you're sort of the good cop in, in this in this relationship. And, right, right. And it, and it occurs to me that, um, you know, for people who are feeling bad about their bodies, what do what, what you are doing is is helping them feel better about their bodies and its capabilities and making them feel stronger. So that that's got to be kind of a, in a sense, an enviable role for you to be able to play with this population. It is an enviable role. The PTs and OTs here generally feel that we're on the patient's good side, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. we sometimes try to support the other team members if they're getting, you know, some, some upsetting news. But yeah, we are definitely an outlet. But I mean, so is moving your body. I mean, it's just, I think it's kind of the nature of physical therapy. You really can get to know your patients and connect with them on a different level but yeah, we do get to show them how strong their body is and how the nutrition refeeds their body. But we, we do try to use our, our good cop uh, role for good here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Nicole, can, can anyone with an eating disorder benefit from seeing a physical therapist, uh, whether or not that, that PT might have a practice that focuses on people with eating disorders and whatever the severity? I think, yes. I think that 
depending on the person. I think if I were the average woman who had an eating disorder, because it is common in men as well, although they underreport, I would potentially seek out a, a woman's health physical therapist if I didn't have access to an eating disorder specific therapist. But another great option would be someone um, who specializes more in geriatrics, actually, because a lot of similar changes happen in the body from malnutrition that also happen with the body's natural aging process. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that PTs have a wide, wide skill set and are generally empathetic and, and sensitive practitioners who could really help anyone, whether it's regaining strength or whether it's weight loss. If it's someone who's doing, you know, who's suffering more from a binge eating disorder or who's in a normal weighted body and just needs help with body mechanics. So I do think that anyone could benefit. I think that our biggest role is probably with people who are suffering from weakness, pain, pelvic floor issues, decreased bone density, or compulsive exercise. But yeah, I think there's many shoes we can fill. I want to go back to something that you said just a little while ago. You said that men tend to underreport eating disorders. I mean, I can intuit what some of the reasons for that might be, but can you talk about that a little bit? I think it's just generally not felt to be as accepted to report. And I think that the way that men experience eating disorders seems to be different as well. So men are often at a more normal body weight or body size despite the eating disorder. So I think that they're not picked up as much in screening. Whereas if you have someone who is essentially half of her body weight, it's pretty obvious that something is going on with her. Men seem to focus, and these are all generalizations, so this of course does not apply to everyone, but men seem to focus more on gaining muscle. And men also seem to suffer more from binge eating disorder, so which was typically supports a more normal or overweight body status. Um, so again, no one's picking up on it. And so if, it's, if there's a stigma associated with it anyways, because I think that people still think of eating disorders as kind of like a white female upper middle class kind of issue, which is not true at all, um, and they're not being picked up by healthcare professionals, then, then they're not going to report unless I think it really, really impacts their function. Is part of it too just the kind of stereotypical uh, male? Uh, I've got this. I don't. I don't need help. Kind of. Uh, kind of mentality. Oh, I'm sure. I don't. I don't have statistics on men versus women seeking therapy or counseling, but I'm. I'm sure the gender roles play into that. Right. So, uh, sort of to wrap up here, if anyone listening to this podcast has an eating disorder or knows someone who does or who might, what's the first thing you'd advise that person to do to to advocate for themselves or for that that friend or loved one? I, again, just want to reiterate that if anyone is really medically unstable or fragile to seek care from their doctor or the emergency room if they need that. Otherwise, any kind of therapist or dietitian is going to be a good place to start. There are some websites or things people can Google. So there's the National Association of Eating Disorders or NIDA. That's a good resource for people. Or HAZE, which is health at every size. Um, I believe IADAP, International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, which is another um, international eating disorder association, has a website where people can go and search for eating disorder specialists. So I think any of those are good places to start. 
Well, Nicole, um, thanks so much for joining us on Move Forward Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or find previous episodes at ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com.